0: Please be seated and pray together. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How vast are his judgments and his thoughts beyond searching out God, your wisdom is so far beyond even our ability to begin to think about it. God, your mind and your thoughts are so great. We think, Lord, that you and your creative genius, genius is too small a word to describe you, but you and your creative genius fought up this world from the complexity of DNA and uh, atoms to the vast uh, scope of the universe with the nebula and the Galaxies that spin, Lord, it all was in your mind at once. And even now, God, it is all in your mind. You see it all. You think about it all. Lord, we can barely keep one thought in front of the other. And yet, you, in every moment, know all things completely and perfectly. Your wisdom and knowledge is so great. Lord, we thank you for uh, that wisdom that not only created the world, but that wisdom that guides this universe. That there is a plan, that there is an inscrutable purpose and plan. That this plan uh, is not just for the big events, but that it goes down to the smallest details. That your wisdom knows the path and trajectory of every molecule. That you know precisely where this world is going for your purposes. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom uh, that was displayed on the cross. We know that the wisdom of God is often foolishness to this world. The world thinks that, uh, Lord, you don't know what you're doing. And Lord, on the cross, this most seemingly foolish moment in your plan was the greatest victory of all. And so, Lord, we ask your forgiveness for doubting your wisdom. We ask your forgiveness for panicking and worrying and becoming filled with anxiety in the midst of life's trials as if you have forgotten us, as if you don't see us. Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. And so, Lord, forgive us for our doubt. Forgive us for our worry. Lord, we trust you. We know that you are in control of our lives. We know that uh, in all things, God, you are working for the good of those who love you. And so, Lord, we trust your plan and your purposes for our lives, for our church, for our nation. We know, God, that you will not be thwarted and stopped. And we thank you that that which you began in us will be brought to completion. Lord, I pray for this church this morning, for these people gathered here, that your uh, encouragement would be upon them. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us as a church how to love each other deeply, sincerely, not just superficially, God, but to really care for each other. Lord, we pray that you would make us a holy church. Help us to, to be disgusted by sin in our lives to not excuse it or justify it, Lord, but to pray for purity. Lord, we pray for uh, the children of this church, that you would bless the kids that are here in this fellowship, that they might grow up to know Christ, that they might see in us godly examples of Christianity. Lord, we pray for our college students who are heading back to college this week and last week, and those who are still in transit, that you would keep them safe on their journey, that you would bless them, that you would let them be lights in the midst of sometimes very dark places. God, we pray for those who are here this morning who are sick or hurting in some way, that you might heal, that you might encourage and lift them up. And now, God, as we come to your word, to the Holy Scriptures, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Uh, We love opening the Bible. It's full of treasures. It's like opening a a treasure chest every time. And we pray, God, that you might reveal your treasures to us today, that we might uh, get a glimpse of your inscrutable wisdom today, that we might worship you as we observe what it is that you do and who you are. And so, Lord, give us the Holy Spirit now, we pray. Enable us to be touched by Your Word, to hear it and to read it the way You want us to. We pray this all now in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Will we invite any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church? And would you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 13? Luke chapter 13. If you're using a Pew Bible, that's on page 1033. Luke chapter 13, page 1033. And we're studying a tiny little portion of Scripture today. Just two little parables, barely four verses. Luke chapter 13, verses 18 to 21. And um, let me read that for you. What was that, an elephant running through here? I don't know. The children and the pachyderms may be dismissed. So, all right. Luke chapter 13, verses 18 to 21. Let me just read the text. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again, he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. So, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? This is really a strange passage, isn't it? Uh, You know, there's some parts of the Bible where you read it and it's really obvious what it means, like, Thou shalt not steal. I got it, right? (laughs) I know what that means. And then you get to passages like this. And here's Jesus and he's talking about yeast and mustard seeds and the kingdom of God is like this. And it's like, you know, what is this? I think this is the kind of passage that causes people to feel that the Bible is too difficult for them to understand. They read passages like this and they think, oh, I, I can never understand this. It's too opaque I can't make sense of it. And what in the world does this have to do with real life? <clears throat> and so we come to a difficult passage like this. And we have to dig around a little bit more. But, uh, you know, the Bible is not just up for grabs. It's not just it means whatever you want it to mean. God has a meaning for it. And sometimes we have to work a little bit more to dig into it. This is one of those texts. Uh, one thing that's obvious from the get-go is that Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of God. He's trying to explain to us what God's kingdom is like. Again, look at verse 18. What is the kingdom of God like? Or verse 20, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? So perhaps we should just start there and remember what the kingdom of God is. Uh, If you've been with us and studying through the Gospel of Luke, uh, you know that Jesus spends a lot of time talking about the kingdom of God. He refers to the kingdom of God. Uh, The kingdom of God basically means the rule of God, the reign of God. You know, God's kingdom is not any place in particular. It's not like a geographical place like Uh, Switzerland or something. Uh, God's kingdom is wherever God is exerting his rule. So it's not so much geographic as it is dynamic. It's the the expression of God's uh, rule and reign. Or another way to think about God's kingdom is you can contrast it to its opposite, which is the kingdom of this world. This world is a kingdom, even though there's lots of nations, yet there's a spiritual uh, cohesiveness to it. It, It's a world system that is uh, turned against God. This world is darkness. This world is ruled by the devil. It's characterized by evil. And so that's one way to think of the kingdom of God is to th- contrast it to how this world is. You know, in this world there is sickness and disease and death. But wherever God's kingdom manifests itself, you find health and life. Uh, this world is uh, broken and twisted, but God's, world, uh, God's kingdom is whole. Uh, this world um, is stained with sin. Everything in this world, every person, family, institution, at some level, has been twisted by sin. There's no perfect uh, thing in this world. There's no Garden of Eden. Everything, even the best things, have been ruined or warped in some way because of evil. Uh, But in God's world, holiness shines. In God's kingdom, purity and righteousness are the foundation of what God does. Uh, God's kingdom shines with justice, not injustice. There's plenty, not poverty. As I said, this world is full of brokenness. We have broken families. We are broken people. We have broken hearts, broken dreams. The church is broken. The government is broken. The UN is broken. It's broken. Even the most whole things are broken. But in God's kingdom, there is shalom, which is the Hebrew word that means wholeness and completeness. That's the kingdom of God. It's where God reigns and where God's life brings life to everything around it. I know it sounds too good to be true, right? It's like, wow, that sounds wonderful, but it's pretty impossible. I mean, I can't imagine this really being, and it is impossible at one level. I mean, we as human beings will never bring God's kingdom to bear. Uh, Every human utopian vision will fail. Human beings cannot create a Garden of Eden here on this world, Uh, we can't do that. We cannot bring about God's kingdom. But what is impossible for people is possible for God. And the promise of the Bible is that God is bringing His kingdom to bear and that someday the kingdom of God will replace completely the kingdom of this world. Jesus came preaching. Remember what He preached? The kingdom of God is here. Jesus said, repent and believe, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so as he was healing people, as he was driving out demons, as he was giving sight to the blind and embracing those who are broken and needy, you could see God's kingdom sort of flashing out and manifesting itself in different ways. Jesus brings the kingdom of God. So what he's doing here in this text is he's explaining to us how the kingdom of God works. He says it's like a mustard seed and it's like some yeast. Uh, Which brings us back to our original question, what does he mean by this? And perhaps it would be helpful at this point just to contrast what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God with how the people in Jesus' original audience would have thought about the kingdom of God. Because uh, if you were to talk to a Jew in the first century in in Palestine, in the Roman Empire there, and said the kingdom of God, they would have been like, woo Because they had very specific ideas of what that kingdom of God was like. And there's some different conceptions among the Jews about how God's kingdom would come. Just like we talk to Christians today about what the end times are like. You might get some slightly different versions. But they were all unified on this point. The Jews believed that God's kingdom was going to come suddenly, completely, quickly, all at once. That it would go from the kingdom of this world, wham, gone, kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God would fall out of the sky like a meteorite and smush the kingdom of this world and destroy evil and, and like all at once, cataclysmically, apocalyptically, uh, dramatically, God's kingdom would be established. So that's what they expected. In fact, um, I was thinking, remembering our study back of John the Baptist, it seems that John the Baptist had a similar idea when he was proclaiming the kingdom of God. He expected it to come suddenly too, I think. If you uh, put a bookmark here and look back at Luke chapter 3. Take a little stroll back through memory lane. I think we were studying this like in uh, 2005 or something. It's so long ago. Luke chapter 3. Here's John the Baptist, the guy who preceded Jesus and launched his ministry. Look at Luke chapter 3 verse 15. And listen for the suddenness and dramatic nature of the kingdom of God. It says, The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. Maybe John is the Messiah, the king, who's going to bring the kingdom. But John denies it. Verse 16, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And look at his ministry. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So, do you see that? There's God's kingdom. It's very, um, uh, it's very divisive in a sense. It comes, and the, the Messiah comes with this winnowing fork. You know how people used to winnow grain back in the old days? They toss it up in the air, and the, the chaff, kind of blows away and separates from the wheat. And so the wheat, the righteous, are going to be put in God's kingdom. And the evil, the bad Roman Gentiles, are going to be thrown into the fire. And it's going to be done like that. Now, what John's saying is true, but I think John's timetable in his own mind was off. Because Jesus comes. The Messiah arrives on the scene. Finally, here He comes. He's going to kick the Romans out. The kingdom of God is coming. And what does Jesus do? He teaches... He goes and hangs out with all the people at the fringe of society. He goes and finds lepers and touches them. He goes to the prostitutes and the tax collectors. right? And he's healing the blind and the sick. And it's like, Jesus, uh, you know, that's nice and all. I'm glad you're doing that. But uh, we still have the Romans in charge and there's political corruption among the leaders in Jerusalem. So let's bring the kingdom of God. Come on, Jesus. And he's still out there at the fringes, healing people and ministering to people. And so there comes a moment, interestingly, in Luke chapter 7, turn to Luke chapter 7, where John the Baptist has a moment of doubt about Jesus' identity. Because Jesus is not bringing a cataclysmic, abrupt, all-at-once, apocalyptic kind of kingdom. He's doing this other stuff. And so John has a doubt. Look at chapter, Luke chapter 7, verse 18. This is John the Baptist. He's in prison at this point in the story. He hears about all this stuff going on from his disciples. Says John's disciples told him about all these things. So, uh, verse 18, Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Uh, Jesus' little question, Was I wrong about the whole Messiah thing? Because uh, you don't seem like you're the Messiah that I was expecting. Jesus has come in a different way. And just as the Jews expect the sudden coming of the kingdom and just as John did, I think we do as well. Have you ever been frustrated by how long it takes God to do things sometimes? God, where is your kingdom? Okay, Jesus, you came 2,000 years ago. You said the kingdom of God is coming. It's 2,000 years later. Uh, It doesn't look like the kingdom of God is here. I mean, let's be completely honest. The 20th century was arguably the most brutal, violent century in all of human history to date. Uh, You have the Holocaust, you have the genocide of the Jews under Hitler, followed by the even greater genocide under communist nations, China, Russia, uh, Cambodia, Uh, you know, that's even worse in the 20th century. There's two world wars, and then we go into the 21st century, and you know, it looks like we're on the same track. I don't think things are getting better You know, the 20th century, 21st century kicks off with the theme of global terrorism. That's kind of our theme for this century, it seems. And so it's not getting better. It's like Jesus, I mean honestly, where is the kingdom of God? Did we get the wrong guy? Jesus, were you the one we were supposed to expect or not? We can ask the question like John. Uh, We look at our own nation. There is crime. The prisons are full. uh, There is still filth and just schmutz being pumped like sewage out of our entertainment and media centers into our culture, um, we look at, at our own uh, lives and we say, God, I've been praying for my dysfunctional, addicted family for years. And nothing seems to be happening. I'm just praying and praying and nothing's changing, God. Where is your kingdom? And if I'm really honest, I look at my own life sometimes and I say, I can't believe it. I can't believe I said that you know, to that person. I mean, I've been a Christian now for 20 years. You'd think I wouldn't blow up like that or go off like that or say a, a, a cutting comment like that. You'd think I'd be beyond those kinds of thoughts or beyond those kinds of behaviors. God, you know, I, I know you've forgiven me my sins and heaven is my home, but I'm so grieved at the sin that still persists in my life. Where is the kingdom? And so like the Jews and like John, we expect a sudden, dramatic, all at once, fix it, it's done kind of kingdom. But Jesus is here to tell us in Luke chapter 13 that God's kingdom, while certain, is coming in a different way. And so now go back to Luke chapter 13. And now hear it with that kind of context in mind. It says in Luke chapter 13, verse 19, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Or verse 21, It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. I think there are at least three things, probably more, but at least three things I just want to focus on this morning that Jesus is teaching us about the nature of God's kingdom. Three things that He wants us to understand that is probably going to be surprising to us. Uh, They might even be shocking, maybe even scandalous. But the way that God is going to bring His kingdom, three ways, three things that may uh, not be what we expected. And the first thing is this. The first thing I see in this text is that, number one, the kingdom of God starts small. It's tiny. It's microscopic. You can't see it. It's like a mustard seed. Which uh, you know, I, I found in my studies that apparently that was the smallest seed that Palestinian farmers had in those days. It was the smallest seed that they knew of. It's a tiny little, you know, pinpoint of a seed. The mustard seed. It's small like that. It's like yeast. I mean, how small is yeast? Yeast is what microscopic, right? I mean, you can Can you see yeast? I, I see the dough rising, but you can't see yeast. It's this little tiny thing. You, you, if you don't pay attention, you're not even going to see it. You know, It's not going to be in the news. The Kingdom of God is not going to make the headlines because it starts so small. I was thinking about how the Kingdom of God first started when Jesus came into the world. I mean, how did Jesus come into the world, right? Small. You'd think that if Christ was coming to set up the Kingdom of God, it would have started big because it's a big problem and it needs a big solution. You know, I could imagine instead of Jesus coming in the manger, Him descending from heaven with a fiery sword and ten million angels behind Him and descending not on Bethlehem but on Rome. And boom! He lands at Rome and He cleans out the imperial palace and He wipes out all of the false Roman and Greek gods, statues that have been established and He obliterates the Gentiles and He establishes the kingdom of God. I mean, that's what you think should happen if God was going to come and set up His kingdom. But instead, you know, how does he come? He's a baby. The Gospel of Luke starts with a baby story. You know, Elizabeth's going to have a baby and Mary's going to have a baby. It's all this baby stuff. Like, what? Oh, this is the kingdom of God. I didn't know this was the nursery. You know, what is this? And he's not only just a baby, he's born to peasants. Mary and Joseph, we know them, but it's only because they had Jesus. If they didn't have Jesus, you would never have known Mary and Joseph. They're total nobodies. Uh, and they're in Palestine, not in Italy, which was the center of the Roman world. You know, Palestine's the backwaters. That's where you get sent if you're, you know, been a bad Roman administrator and you're being punished. You, you know, kind of get, got to go do your time in Palestine, and hopefully you get out of there pretty soon. And so here's Jesus. He's in this small little group. And and think about his disciples. I was thinking about how his ministry starts. He picks these twelve disciples. Who are these guys? Just twelve? All right. First of all, twelve. That's a small number. It's not a hundred, or how many people does it take to take over the world? Jesus says it's going to take twelve. Twelve. Right? That's like a drop in the sea of humanity. And these guys are just such a bunch of yahoos. I mean, these disciples are a bunch of nobodies. They're just regular guys that Jesus finds. Obviously, they're part of God's plan, but from the human perspective, you know, they're not people of influence. It's not like Jesus went around and picked the twelve most important, uh, people in Palestine. I'm going to pick you know, this rabbi and that priest and all the people that everyone would know and respect. That's who I'll pick to be my... Yeah. It's more like Jesus went into the bleachers at a Red Sox game. <laughs> Way back in the bleachers where all the yo-yos sit and get drunk, right? You know that part. And no offense if you sit in the in the bleachers. I mean, you know, you're a yo-yo, but that's okay. We love you. Um, and, and, you know, just go into the bleachers and be like, all right, One, uh, two, three, And that's the disciples. (laughs) And that's how Jesus is going to change the world. Or think about the most important moment in the kingdom of God was when Jesus died on the cross. You cannot get any smaller than to be crucified. When you are crucified, you are now officially smashed under the foot of Rome you you are worthless you are less than dirt people walk by and they just make fun of you you are dead meat you're hanging there on a cross you cannot get any smaller than crucified and yet at that moment was the hinge upon which all of human history turned at the cross was when the great victory was accomplished but god loves to bring his kingdom through the small through the small things which of course frustrates us because as americans we like big Right? Isn't that the American thing? Big. We like big cars, and we like big TVs and bigger TVs. And my TV is never quite big enough, and doesn't my stereo does not have enough wattage, and my uh, computer's processor is too small, and my boat is you know five feet too small. I always need something bigger, uh, and I want you to please supersize my order. Thank you. Uh, make it larger. And so we respect big. Companies and we don't want to shop at a little dinky store. We want the Derby Street shops because it's big and there's lots of huge stores there. And I go into Whole Foods and there's all this food. And and so we're kind of obsessed as Americans with size and quantity and things that are big or good and things that are small or bad and not to be paid attention to. So to be told that the kingdom of God is small at its beginnings is really goes against what we would think. And when something small in our lives especially spiritual things, we get very frustrated. We're like, I'm teaching this Bible study. I put it in the bulletin and I only got two people coming to my Bible study. And, you know, sometimes only one of them comes. So it's like me and this other person. We're staring at each other. and You know, what am I doing this for? Why am I leading this Bible study? It's just two people. I'm teaching this Sunday school class and there's five little kids in it. I mean, ugh. Every week I'm here at church. I... And I have to prepare for five kids. I mean, it's so small. It's so meaningless. I'm just one person in my whole family. My whole family doesn't know the Lord. They all make fun of me. They all think I've joined a cult. They all think I'm crazy. I'm one person in my family. And I pray for them and I say my little prayers and I'm just one little small person standing in the gap praying for my family. I mean, it's so pointless. It's all so small, right? It reminded me of a story I read about a an evangelist who went to uh, he was in India and uh, was speaking at some youth event and and so he gave this gospel message and you know preaching about you need to come to know Jesus and he preached from John 3:16 for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life i mean that's the biggest news that you could ever hear and he's preaching away and preaching away and at the end of the thing he gives an altar call you guys seen altar calls? You know what those are? Like Billy Graham does them. Like, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, walk down the aisle and come stand here in the front. Uh, kind of a thing. So anyway, he does that. After this big, huge sermon, one guy comes walking down the aisle. I mean, you know, it's like you go home and your wife's like, how'd the evangelistic crusade go, honey? Terrible. This one guy came down the aisle. I mean, it's so, so worthless. Of course, that one guy's name was Ravi Zacharias. And how is this man to know that Ravi Zacharias would become one of the most influential evangelists and apologists for the Christian faith in our generation? But if you look by numbers and smallness, one of the things I love that uh, our youth pastor, Rich Chamberlain, often talks about, is he'll say to me, you know, I'm not looking to have a big, successful, you know, famous youth ministry. He says, but I would love to be the youth ministry where the next Billy Graham comes through. And he said that to me. I'm like, yeah, I like that. You know, thinking not about ourselves, but about what God's going to do through our smallness. And so, people, do the small thing God is telling you to do. Do the small thing. I don't know what it is, but there's some small thing God's asked you to do, and you despise it because it's small. Don't despise it. Just do it. Lead the small class. Say your small puny prayers for your family. Uh, when that person down the street uh, loses a loved one, take your small little casserole to them. If someone you know you needs some money, give them 20 bucks. It's not much. I mean, why even give them the money because 20 bucks, it's gone like that. It doesn't matter. Just do the small thing that God's called you to do. Do the small act of mercy, the small step of obedience, and trust that God starts small. He loves those things. He works through those things. Your small ministry, your small little effect that you're having on one person can be used by God to do anything. Nothing hinders God. We're hung up with numbers. God's got no problem with numbers. One, a million, it's all the same to him. He can turn one into a million or a million into one. And so we need to trust him and just do the small thing God's calling us to do, believing and knowing that God's kingdom starts small. But the good thing is, even though it starts small, It grows. And that's the second thing I think we see from these parables about the nature of God's kingdom. It starts small, but it grows gradually. It's like a mustard seed, which eventually turns into a tree. Apparently, these mustard plants could grow into like 10 foot, like they're sort of big bushes, you know, maybe like a Rose of Sharon bush or something, you know, just a big, sort of bushy thing. And so, this tiny little thing turns into this tree, but it grows gradually. It's like yeast. You know, yeast takes time to permeate the dough. You, you put some yeast in the dough, you put it there, you, know, you put a towel over it, and you put it up on your fridge, and you come back and peek at it, and it's rising a little bit. And then you go back a couple hours later, it's risen a little bit more. It's not like you put the yeast in the dough and it suddenly goes, Poof. it's not how it works. You've got to let it rise. You've got to let the plant grow. It's a gradual process. Um, in fact, it reminded me of another parable that Jesus told. It's in the Gospel of Mark. Would you just put a bookmark here in Luke? And flip back to the Gospel of Mark chapter four. It goes, "Mark, Mark is right before Luke. Uh, Mark, Luke. Mark chapter four, verses 26 to 29. Mark chapter four, verse 26. He also said, "This is what the kingdom of God is like." A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. There it is. The kingdom of God is growing slowly. You know, you plant the seeds and you don't even really know how it grows. It just grows. It's very gradual. It's a process. Uh, but, but it's growing nonetheless. Uh, a couple of years ago, I planted a couple cedar trees on the edge of my property because the prevailing winds come down the street, and in the winter it's very cold, and, and those prevailing winds just you know, freeze off plants and trees and things. So I put these cedar trees to kind of form a wind block against it. And I remember when I put the trees in, uh, the tallest one was about as tall as I am. But so, I forget when, but sometime this summer I was out mowing my lawn, and I looked up, and I was like, wow, that tree's huge. I can't even reach the top of it now. You know, how did that happen? Well, I mean, I know how it happened, but, right? Some, for some reason, growing things always surprise us. You see a kid you haven't seen in four months, you're like, wow, you really grew. And we have these moments, these uh, epiphanic moments, where we see the invisible growth, and it comes all at once. Um, a lot of times you don't see it. In fact, most of the time, I think you don't see growth. Growth is not something you observe. It's something you realize at different moments along the way has actually been taking place continuously, unbeknownst to you. Um, It's like, I was thinking of like when we have a baptism Sunday here at church. I love those Sundays when people get baptized. And on those Sundays, you get this little glimpse into what God has been doing behind the scenes. Some guy tells a story. He's like, you know, I was at a Bible study and... I didn't know Christ, but I I thought about it and prayed and the love of the people and the Bible started to get to me and suddenly I've come to know Christ and now, you know, I'm thinking about leading a Bible study and like, wow, I didn't realize all that was happening behind the scenes. But that's how God is working. He's always working, whether we're asleep or whether we're awake, his kingdom is growing. But the thing is, it's a gradual process. And so rather than the kingdom of God crashing into the world like a meteorite, it started with Jesus and it's kind of growing gradually. Which, again, I think frustrates us as Americans. Because we don't like small, but we even less like slow. (laughs) Give me small before you give me slow. I hate slow. Slow drivers, I mean, mean, you know, that tests my my sanctification to the max. Um, (laughs) uh, I don't like, I want fast DSL. I want to click and I want to see the website. I don't want to have it load. I don't want to wait. I don't have time. Um, I, I want fast food. I want fast service. If I go to the grocery store and and I have all my stuff finally, and there's like eight checkout lines, and they only have two of them open, and the people are backed up, I'm going bananas. I'm like, come on, you better get some more people in there. I'm never coming to the store again. <laughs> I, I don't have time to wait. And lady, would you put the checkbook away? Oh my goodness. And you're sitting there trying to keep your cool. Because i got to go. And let's not even talk about email. How email has accelerated the pace of our lives. I I think email has obliterated any sense of of pacing and rhythm in business. It's so immediate. Everything is so fast and spontaneous. And you know, the thing is, you send someone an email, they don't respond within an hour. You're like, I sent that an hour ago. You haven't emailed me back yet? I mean, it's been an hour and a half for crying out loud. I mean, come on. It's, everything's so instantaneous. We're so impatient. And so we get impatient with God. God, you know, why aren't you working? Why aren't you doing this? And why has it taken so long to build the building a church? I mean, God, what is wrong with you? But God's kingdom grows. Gradually. And it can be so irritating. (laughs) But it's how God works. (laughs) He's working in his timetable. Think about how long it's taken for the church to get where it's at. 21 centuries. Jesus started the kingdom of God with 12 guys. And within a couple centuries, they had permeated the Roman Empire. And then over the next centuries, it spread up into Europe and then into the Isles. And there, it, it went a little bit over uh, into the East, into India, and some down into uh, Africa. But for the most part, it was in Europe and in the Isles. Uh, but it kind of stayed there for a while until the 16th and 17th centuries with the Reformation and then the Moravians, maybe you've heard of them, uh, in, in Heron Hut, they started sending out one-by-one one little missionaries and they started going over down to the Caribbean and they started going to the New World and the Gospel spread of the New World. And then the 19th century was a huge turning point in the history of Christianity. It was the beginning of the modern missions movement. And in the 19th century, missionaries started going out to Burma, in India, and China, and Africa. In the 20th century, missions exploded. And so now, in the, the dawn of the 21st century, uh, the center of gravity for the church has shifted from the west, and it has shifted to the south and to the east. So if you were to bring the average looking Christian up here that sort of like take all the Christians in the world and pick the average looking one it would not look like me it would not be a white guy it would be a Brazilian it would be an African it would be a a Chinese person that's where Christianity is today it's not western anymore it's shifted away Because the gospel is spreading around the world. But you'll never hear about that on Fox News. They won't talk about it in the New York Times. Even though this is, I think, one of the most amazing things that should be blowing the world away. Because the world doesn't see the growth. It's gradual and it's steady. And today, Christianity is the fastest growing religion in the world. But you won't be told that. Because God's kingdom is working in its own ways. Mysteriously, secretly, inscrutably, amazingly, slowly, Moving forward in God's way and in God's time. Because that's how God works. And you know, God's at work in your families. God's at work in your neighborhoods. God's at work in our church. There's a reason it's taken so long to build the addition here at South Shore Baptist. Because God's at work. And what's he doing? I don't know. I wish I knew. I'd write a book. But I don't know what he's doing. But He's working. And so we have to trust him that at those moments he's going to show us what he's been doing but for a while we have to trust that he's working things out in his own secret way. We don't know what's going on in people's hearts. We can't see what's happening in people's minds. So keep praying. Keep trusting. Keep doing the little things that God tells you to do. Trusting that those are seeds. And we even say that, don't we? We say, well, I just planted some seeds. Right. You planted some seeds, it's going to take time to grow. We need to let God's kingdom grow and work and trust that the process is at work. And when we look at our own lives and get frustrated at how we keep stubbing our toes, and I've been a Christian for five years, and I said this to my spouse, or I, you know, did that with my money. I mean, we have to stop and, and trust that God is still working. Not that that's an excuse for sin, but that we trust that God is at work and He has not given up on us. His kingdom is moving forward. Which brings me to the third and most glorious point which is that it will reach completion. It's not just process ad infinitum. There will be a completion. The mustard seed will become a tree. The yeast will permeate all of the dough. Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all nations and then the end will come. But there will be an end. First, the gospel must go outward. And that's what it's doing now. God's kingdom is spreading, but it will reach a place. So the Jews were right. John the Baptist was right. There will be an apocalyptic, dramatic conclusion. What they didn't understand was that Christ revealed was that it had to start small first and slowly grow until finally, in God's good time, it will reach its completion and Christ will return in glory. And so we can have confidence. I can tell you confidently this morning that the gospel is going to permeate Iran. I believe firmly that the Church of Jesus Christ will be established in North Korea. I believe that in Saudi Arabia, where if you convert from Islam into anything else, including Christianity, you can be killed, legally. I believe the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia will come under the power of the Kingdom of God at some point. They say, how? How can you say that? How do you know? It's like, well, because I don't know how it's going to happen. I just know the yeast works in the dough. The tree grows. And so we, we give to missions and we serve missions and we know that God's kingdom is going to come. Nothing can thwart it. Fascism cannot thwart it. Uh, unbelief cannot thwart it. Atheism cannot thwart it. Islam cannot thwart it. Jesus Christ's kingdom is coming. Unstoppably. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And take courage in your own lives. God is working in you still. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What He started, He will finish in your lives. What He started in this church, He will bring to fruition. Every plan and purpose of God will reach its destination. And so we can have confidence that God is at work in our families, in our lives. And we just need to trust Him and pray and believe that His kingdom has begun, is coming and will come. And so let me just sort of end this way, given the fact that the kingdom of God is coming with certainty. uh, Can I just ask the simple question? Do you know for certain if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God? That's the most important question. Do you know for certain that if you were to die tonight that you would go to heaven? That's is that fuzzy to you? Do you say, well, I hope so. No, no, no. Don't hope. No. Do you know for certain that Christ is your Savior? Now is the time to enter the kingdom of God. Now is the time to come to Christ. And so you say, well, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom of God? Is it a big thing? I mean, it's a big kingdom. It must be a big thing I have to do. Maybe I have to, you know... Give up all my, you know, bad things and start attending church perfectly and become really religious. Is that how you enter the kingdom of God? Do I need to do penance, acts of contrition? Do I need to take sacraments? Do I need to carry a, a beam of wood up Mount Washington? You know, what do I need to do to prove that I'm ready to enter the kingdom of God? And none of that stuff can get you into the kingdom of God. God actually only wants us to do a small thing. It starts small. It's simply trusting Jesus. Jesus has done the big thing. Jesus carried the wood up the hill. Jesus gave himself for our sins. He has done it all. And it is ours simply to trust in him. Salvation is through faith alone in Christ. And so put your faith in Christ. Enter the kingdom of God. Let that seed of heaven be planted in your soul. And begin to germinate. And watch it grow. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this encouraging word that you spoke to us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the eyes of faith to see behind this world, to see your kingdom secretly advancing under the radar, out of people's consciousness. And yet, Lord, your kingdom is moving forward one life at a time, one heart at a time, one family at a time. The Bible is being translated one language at a time. Churches are being planted one church at a time. And so, Lord, we trust that your kingdom is moving forward and it's moving forward in our lives. Keep us faithful, God, in the interim. Keep us trusting you and depending upon you. Help us not to give in to our flesh, our impatience, and our bad attitudes, Lord. Instead, help us to trust and to believe and to stand against what seems to be impossible and to believe and, and to speak faith into the face of impossibility and to believe that You, Jesus, are the Lord and the Savior. So God, we put our trust in You. Encourage Your flock this morning through Your Word, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, one of the great things about being the pastor is if you want to sing your favorite hymn, you can sing it. And everyone has to sing it with you. So would you turn to hymn number 705, I thought an appropriate hymn, also my favorite hymn. And would you stand hymn number 705? I hope you won't object.